good morning. It is good to be back together after a bit of an extended break uh, from this meeting. Of course, we didn't stop being the church last Sunday, but we, uh, we did take a break from this meeting, and it's good. It's good to be back here with you at this time. Uh, continuing in our psalm series. So we are, this will be the third part of our series three weeks ago. Oh, children's church, right? Yeah. Someday. Someday. By the Yeah. Children's church in the back, that's uh, ages two to six. You can head downstairs for a program down there. The rest of you are stuck with me. Um, two weeks ago, we started talking in the psalms about this idea that the psalms gives us permission to be emotionally honest with God. This idea of messy honesty. Uh, two weeks ago, Mike talked a bit about the Psalms as, as a missional call, right? Something that draws us towards um, spreading the good news of Christ uh, with others, which is an interesting thing, of course, because they were, these Psalms were written hundreds of years before Jesus. But, but we read them now and we see that call in the Psalms to spread uh, the love of God and the message of Jesus uh, through the world. And today we are going to be talking about Psalms and the power of stories. So I'm going to get into that with you, but I want to start off in prayer. So if you'll bow with me. God, I pray that uh, as we continue this series, as we continue to dig into what the Psalms have to teach us about our relationship with you, uh, about our relationship with each other, that you will guide us, that you will be active in our hearts, that you will be active here in this room, in our community, as we explore this together. That, uh, that we will see change and growth uh, in relationship as we, uh, as we explore these truths, that these things will work in our hearts, God, and draw us closer to you. In your name, amen. If, uh, if you were to talk to a cultural anthropologist, that's somebody who studies how ancient humans uh, interacted, processed information, uh, built their culture and society, they would tell you that before we were musicians, before we were poets, before we were artists, before we were philosophers, we were storytellers. That storytelling is the oldest and most universal form of communication. And they might in fact argue that language and poetry and art and philosophy and music were at some level built or refined or fine-tuned out of a, a primal desire to tell stories to one another. Stories were the first thing that we painted on cave walls. They were the first thing that we stamped into clay. They were the first thing that we turned into music. Storytelling was the primary way that we passed down wisdom, that we taught about the world and our place in it, that we created empathy, that we created connection to each other, that we remembered our roots and our history and in fact, if you talk to a communications expert today, they will quickly acknowledge that storytelling is a much more com uh, effective communications tool than just listing information. There's a big move in the business world towards communicating through storytelling because we are so wired to attach to narrative, to attach to story. And in fact, this need for storytelling is so strong that we take inanimate things and we project meaning onto them, right? The stars in the sky become constellations spelling out tales of ancient gods. We see faces in burnt toast. We see castles in tea leaves. We see dragons in clouds. Human beings, people deep down, 
are wired, are compelled by their nature to look for narrative, to look for those sorts of story connections between things. And to demonstrate this just a little bit, I want to watch a video. Now, this video was made in the 1940s, and it looks like it was made in the 1940s. It is not very crisp. It has no audio very intentionally. It's about a minute, minute and a half, and, and uh, maybe it'll make sense to you, maybe it won't. But I'm not going to explain it any further. I'm going to get you to watch the video. We'll talk a little bit about it afterwards. So I want to remind you of what is actually happening there. What is actually practically going on is two triangles and a circle are moving around on a two-dimensional plane around a rectangle with a hinge in it. That's it. No names, no music, no speaking, no words, no context, no faces, no characters, just a couple of shapes bouncing around. And yet when they showed this video to the university students in the study, over and over again, people saw complex narratives. Two men fighting over a woman, going in and out of a house, her being rescued from an abusive relationship. People applied gender, emotion, structure, backstory, personality to these inanimate objects. They played exactly the same video in reverse, got an entirely different story out of people. And we are wired to do this. I'm sure many of you were at some level applying emotion, applying story, applying character to those shapes as you saw them kind of randomly moving around in that image. And because this is such a core part of our processing, stories can hold huge power over us, for better and for worse. Stories begin to shape our understanding of the world around us. They become very important in the way that we process our own lives and our relationships with people around us and our relationships with God. And theologically, because we know that we are created in God's image, and because we read the Bible, which is God-breathed and God-inspired, we can see that God is a storyteller too. That at whatever level we can presume to understand God, we at least know that He teaches us intentionally through story, through narrative. Because otherwise the Bible would just be a list of rules, right? Do's and don'ts, things that we can and can't do, should and shouldn't do. But God is a storytelling God. And we see this in Jesus as well. So many important truths that Jesus speaks are wrapped up in parable, are wrapped up in story. And so when we are looking at the Bible itself and when we are looking at the teachings of Jesus, we see that when God gives us his word, when God gives us truth, it's often wrapped up or packaged in or delivered in a story because that's how we were built. So all of this to say that today we are going to be going through what I would call a story psalm, Psalm 105. And it goes over the history of Israel, not in a measured way, not in a way that gives equal time to every event or to every person, or to every situation, but in a way that it is designed to tell a powerful story that communicates a powerful truth about God and carries powerful emotional weight for the listener that connects with that story. And this psalm actually shows up outside of the psalms too. We first see uh, this psalm, or we see it in First Chronicles 16. So this is right after the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem, right after David is 
uh, celebrating in the streets. There's this sort of ceremony that is set up. David instructs the priests to read this psalm to remind the Israelites of their history through the retelling of this very, very familiar story. And uh, the psalm, the version of it that shows up here in Psalm 105, is a long one. And I want to note that quickly, uh, something that's interesting about the psalm, this is a bit of a side note, but I think is as we look at the value that psalms have, one of the things that we do, one of the things that we've already seen and will continue to see, is that they open up our boundaries in terms of worship. They give us permission to talk to God and engage with God and to worship God in a variety of ways. And it's one of the things that I love about the Psalms. We talked three weeks ago about the fact that the Psalms give us permission to come to God in any emotional state, right? God is not scared of our anger towards Him. He's not scared of our anger uh, towards other people. That doesn't mean that the anger in our hearts is good. It's not something we should cultivate. But we are called to cultivate honesty. And this psalm, when I look at this, a storytelling psalm, a long psalm, a sort of structured psalm with a logical build and direction to it, and I stack it up against some of the shorter psalms, some of the more poetic psalms or, or, the, or the emotional psalms, I think something powerful that we can learn here is that psalms give us permission to break the mold of worship. We should be very skeptical of paint-by-numbers solutions to our worship lives or our devotional lives uh, with Jesus. Super, super structured systems that say, you can only pray like this, or you can only do devotions like this, or it must be for this long, or it doesn't count, because the Psalms teach us that engaging with God is sometimes long and meditative and structured and thoughtful, and sometimes it's spontaneous and unstructured and spur of the moment and quick. And sometimes we pray for hours, sometimes it takes one sentence, sometimes we read scripture, sometimes we sing a new song, and the Psalms remind us that each of us are created differently to worship differently, and more than that, each of us individually will go through different seasons of worship, that we are fluid and changing. That we can connect with different parts of who God is or through different modes of worship throughout our lives. And the psalm says, that's okay. Variety is okay. New and different and unique is okay. Repetition is okay. Coming back to the same well is okay. The important thing is engagement, is wrestling, is honesty in all situations. So in this psalm, David was very intentional with what he was trying to have the priests say, with what he was instructing them to say. This was sort of an official prayer that was very deliberate and structured and designed to draw the Israelites into relationship and connection and trust in a God who had been active through their histories. The listeners will have known these stories deeply and fully, and it was designed to be a celebration of a God who has been faithful returning, right, in the Ark of the Covenant, of this symbol of God dwelling with his people being returned to Israel. So there is something a little bit more ceremonial about how this is put together. Um, it's less personal than some of the Psalms, right? Many Psalms are very, very personal. It's me and God. But this isn't really built for just me or for just you. It's built for us together uh, to, to be spoken actually out loud in corporate worship in a church setting like this. And because it's long, I'm not going to be able to break things down uh, verse by verse. There's a lot that I'd like to get into, 
that I won't be able to touch on today, but I do think it is important because of how this psalm was designed, because of the intention behind it, that it's read out loud in community, together here as God's people. Um, And so I want to read it through once in its entirety. And I'm not going to put it up on the PowerPoint. Um, I encourage you, if you want, to follow along in your own Bibles. But I want you to pay special attention to the hearing of the words. As I read, I want you to try and imagine a little bit what it could have been like 3,000 years ago to be crowded into a courtyard as the people of Israel waiting to hear the priest's words as you stand in Jerusalem, in the promised land, on ground that your ancestors were promised hundreds of years ago, standing before the Ark of the Covenant, standing before God's own holy presence, returned to your people for the first time in a generation. So you're standing there and waiting, and this is what is read out loud. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. He sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass. Till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, his wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark, for had they not rebelled against his words? He turned their water into blood, causing their fish to die. Their land teemed with frogs, which went up into the bedrooms of their rulers. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He turned their rain into hail, with lightning throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. 
He spoke, and the locusts came, grasshoppers without number. They ate up every green thing in their land, ate up the produce of their soil. Then he struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their manhood. He brought out Israel, laden with silver and gold. And from among their tribes no one faltered. Egypt was glad when they left, because dread of Israel had fallen on them. He spread out a cloud as their covering, and a fire to give light at night. They asked, and he brought them quail. He fed them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed like a river in the desert, for he remembered his holy promise given to his servant Abraham. He brought his people with rejoicing, and his chosen ones with shouts of joy. He gave them the lands of their nations, and they fell heir to what others had toiled for, that they may keep his precepts and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. So there's lots there that we could get into, uh, but in the interest of time, I'm going to keep it to three basic lessons that I think we can learn from this psalm. Three truths that I think we need to keep in our hearts as we meditate on, as we learn from this together today. And then I want to tie it back into the idea of story or storytelling. So the first lesson is this. God cares about us, not just me. So we should value community. There are a few things that I often come back to in sermons. I think every pastor has their pet topics or stories or ideas that they tend to float back towards. Um, but this is something that I'm really passionate about. And, and one of the reasons why I'm really excited about small groups is this idea that we need to fight hard against an individualism that has crept in to Christianity, a focus on me over us. And I know that God cares about us individually. That's very clear. The Psalms themselves, in fact, give tons of examples about individual worship, about looking at God's care over the details of life, about how deeply he knows and loves each of us individually. But when I read the Bible, I see a God who is just as concerned and in some ways more concerned about us together than he is about me individually. And this psalm is an important reminder of that. We see individuals pop up here and there. Uh, we see the big names show up, Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Jacob. But they are brought up essentially as maybe leading or solo instruments as a part of a larger orchestra. They're special players that God is using in a special way to accomplish his plan for us, for all of us, for all of them. Over and over again, what we see God caring about is them. Caring about Israel, the nation, we see words, they, their, showing up over and over again, talking about the group, Israel, and by extension, we can apply that to us as God's chosen people. God values community. His stories and his truths are designed to be shared and experienced in community. He calls us over and over again to live in community, to lift up the broken, to think of others as ourselves. And in a world that is so deeply and totally driven by a me first, my truth, my life, my rules, my pleasure mentality, it is my strong belief that one of the most important and radical and Christ-like callings that the church has today is to truly live like our neighbor is just as important and just as loved and just as valuable as we are. So that's the first point. God cares about us 
not just me. So we should value community. The second point is this. God is sovereign, so we should trust him. So depending on what circles you run in, the word sovereign can be a little bit of a loaded word. There's been a long debate over the years about the balance between God's control of the world, between his sovereignty, and humanity's ability to choose or to make a choice. On the one side, we have Calvinism or predestination or election or whatever word you want to use for that. And on the other side, we have Arminianism or free will. And this argument between humanity's choice and God's sovereignty has gone on uh, for hundreds of years. And it's sometimes gotten very ugly. And if you want to talk to me about where I land on this, what my thoughts on that debate are, we can have that conversation sometime. I don't have time to get into it today. This isn't the sermon for it. But no matter what my thoughts are or what your thoughts are, it's very clear that this psalm is intentionally driving home a point. God has a plan. God is in control. And God's going to get it done. Over and over again in this psalm, we see this pronoun he used for God. He called down famine. He hardened the hearts of Israel's enemies. He brought them out of Egypt. He fed them. He gave them the land. He remembers his promises. God is faithful and worthy of trust, the psalmist says. And so when we take stock of our history with God, with the ways that he has been faithful, that gives us a bedrock of trust to build faith in his hand, in our futures, in his ability to work in our lives, to bring things together for the better, to act out his plans for us, maybe in his time, maybe in unexpected ways, but the story of the past and a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever shows that God can be trusted. He is sovereign, so we can trust him. We are his chosen people, and he will remember his promises to us. So that's the second point. The third point is this, God deserves the glory, so we should praise him. So along with the sovereignty of God, this is maybe the flip side of the coin in some ways, that is our dependence on God, our inability to do good things apart from him. If God is the one in control, if God is the one that's making these things happening, if God is the one fulfilling the promises, then it becomes obvious who in this story, in this psalm, deserves the praise deserves the honor and the glory. David speaks about Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Aaron. But if the point here were to hold those men up, the psalm would have started differently. It might have talked about holding up a rejoicing in the faithfulness, in the strength, in the power of their ancestors, right? Rejoice in Moses and his choice to follow God. Rejoice in Abraham and his relationship with God. But everything here... Every line in this psalm continuously comes back to God and the way that he is moving in the story and the way that he is sending and working in the lives of people. And another way that individualism that we sometimes have in Christianity plays out is that we can start to read the Bible and twist it into being a story that is primarily about us, about what we are doing for God, about the ways that we are faithful to God, about what we are accomplishing in God's name. But this psalm reminds us and in a way, it is a small picture of a point that's made throughout Scripture. The Bible, primarily, is a story about what God is doing for us. It's a story about how God has been active. And so it's important not to get that backwards or twisted around. 
The Bible reminds us and this psalm reminds us God is at work. God deserves the glory. God is guiding and leading. And, and we, of course, have the benefit of 3,000 more years of that story than David did. We can see more than just fulfilling the covenant to get Israel into Jerusalem, more than just returning the Ark of the Covenant. God has fulfilled his ultimate covenant with humanity to give us hope and a future through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. God has expanded his view from Israel to the whole world, to all of us. All of us are chosen. All of us are sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. And all of us who follow Christ have the Holy Spirit. God, not just in a box or an altar in front of us, but actually living inside of us. And God has continued to be faithful, and it continues to be true that he gets the glory, not us. In response, as the psalmist says in the very first verse, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. And again in the closing, praise the Lord. God is in control. He deserves praise for his role in our lives. Not only through his faithfulness as shown to the Israelites, but ultimately we read this psalm with another layer of God's faithfulness at work in our lives. God deserves praise and glory because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So as we conclude, I want to quickly get back to stories. Stories are powerful. They shape us. The Israelites understood the importance of story. And so as we tell our stories, we need to be intentional about how we tell them. And you may think, well, I'm not a storyteller. But all of us think about our lives in narrative terms. All of us tell stories every day to ourselves and to other people. Stories about how our day went, stories about our childhood, stories about exciting things that are happening in our lives or pain that we are going through, stories about the people or situations that have helped us, that have built us up, or that have hurt us. And we are almost unconsciously, actually most of the time it basically is unconsciously, telling stories to ourselves about that we are the hero in the situation or we're the victim in the situation. And it's so automatic that we forget that those internal stories can be changed. That we actually can choose how we think about our lives. That we can frame the narrative of our circumstances that we might not have control over. We've got control about how we look at those circumstances. And so as Paul talks about resolving to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and as David shows in this psalm, we should be focused on remembering our community, the body that we are a part of, remembering God's sovereignty, his lordship in our lives, and giving him the glory. And if we take this advice from the Psalms to heart, that's going to fundamentally change the way that we tell our stories. So this is what I want to challenge you with. Uh, when you are journaling, when you are processing, when you are thinking or talking about your day, I want you to start asking these three questions based on the points that we covered. The first question is, how important is my community, that's my church, my family, my neighbors, how important is community in my story? The second question is this, where can I find God working in my story? Where do I see his fingerprints? Where do I see his guidance? Where do I see him working in my life? And the third is this, how can I give God glory for my story? This isn't a perfect formula, 
I'm not suggesting that instead of saying you caught a fish this big that you now have to say, I caught a fish this big and it reminded me of how much I love my church and I can tell that God directed me to this part of the lake and I could never have even gone fishing if it weren't for his active presence in my life. Not every single story has to tick all of these boxes all of the time, but start asking yourself those questions and start paying attention to how often are these things coming up in the way that I talk about my life, in the way that I talk about the things that are happening to me, in the way that I talk about the good and the bad and the, and the joy-filled and the pain-filled in my life. These things, according to David in this psalm, and according to the example that we see set forth from Jesus and also throughout the Bible, these things should be coming up in our stories. So, as we recognize God's action in our lives and in the history of humanity, and in the stories of the Bible, as the psalm ends, may we respond by keeping his precepts, observing his laws, and praising the Lord. Amen.